Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, nature. Everybody agrees that we should protect more of it, but it costs money. Today, we have a special spotlight on the nature investment gap and how to overcome it. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of some new modeling from Clean Energy Canada, and Mike Moffat caps it all off with his list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. In September last year, Canada finalized the creation of its 48th and newest national park. It's called Thaidane Nene in the Northwest Territories. A national park enjoys the highest level of nature protection in Canada. It means no resource extraction, no development. But it doesn't come cheap. Thaidane Nene depended on a government investment of $40 million over its first 12 years. Whether it's national or provincial parks, wilderness areas, forest management, or wetland restoration, protecting nature comes with a price tag. Traditionally, that price tag has been borne by governments and philanthropic organizations acting in the public interest. But that has left a big gap between what we're investing in nature and what experts say we need to be investing in nature. And so how can we draw investment into nature from new and unusual suspects? From resource companies, from banks, from cities, from farmers, from industrial polluters. To answer that, I spoke with three of Smart Prosperity Institute's own experts in this area. They shared some fascinating insights on why we need more investment in nature, the tools to draw it in, and what success looks like. The following are clips from our conversation. To start us off, here's Paige Olmsted. Paige is head of Smart Prosperity's conservation finance research. I asked her to sum up why we need to invest in nature right now and what is the nature investment gap. Nature, you know, I think we're, we're really excited that it's receiving a lot more attention lately. Canada has made some historic commitments, including protecting uh, or announcing the intention to protect 30% of lands and waters by 2030. Uh, the recent federal budget had a range of financial commitments that were announced related to nature, including roughly $4 billion for conservation of lands and oceans, um, especially emphasizing the importance of investments in Indigenous protected and conserved areas. A lot of the focus, however, on nature-based solutions or talking about nature in general has been on the role of how they can help support the mitigation of climate change, which is absolutely essential, but also want to remind folks or talk about all of the other things that natural systems do. Um, They underpin food security and global supply chains. A recent World Economic Forum report estimated about 50% of the global economy relies on natural systems in some way. We know that access to nature directly impacts physical and mental health, and Smart Prosperity has done some work um, supported by Health Canada along these lines recently. We also know that healthy ecosystems provide resilience to disease, to support climate adaptation when you think about floods and other types of impacts to communities. So when we're talking about nature and investing in nature, it's not only about wild places and rare species, but the role of nature is even or can be even more important to people in 
urban or suburban areas. When we think about flood regulation, water filtration, reducing the urban heat island effect, which has health impacts, can reduce energy use and more. And while we're beginning to do a better job of seeing the value of nature and thinking of it, thinking of them as assets in certain contexts, when that can be helpful to incorporate into decision-making, it's something that we're making moves on, but it's still quite slow. So despite this better understanding and beginning to integrate um, thinking about nature in different ways, um, with respect to investing in nature, we're still falling quite short in Canada and globally. Uh, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, has a recent report looking at some of these statistics and estimated that the annual, annual investment needs to triple by 2030. And these are all rough estimates, but I think, you know, having the right order of magnitude gives us a bit of an idea. Um, one report that the Nature Conservancy of Canada was involved in with Rally Assets estimated that Canada's annual gap is $15 billion a year. And, and the global gap currently um, is several, like on the order of $750 billion a year. So while Canada's commitments are a great sign and this attention that's being provided to nature is significant, we still need to do a lot more. And there has been a lot of attention put on the private sector, not only to change practices that can reduce damage, the certain types of activities that can damage ecosystems, but also directly investing in restoring and protecting nature. Next, I asked Stuart Elgy about the link between nature and climate change. Stuart is executive chair of Smart Prosperity Institute and has been deeply involved in policy conversations around both nature and climate. Here he says that that climate-nature linkage has opened up important opportunities for driving investment to nature. So uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on forests, I think, because my colleague Scott's going to talk about agriculture. And in that area... It's true to say that Canada has a truly globally significant opportunity to conserve both carbon and biodiversity in its forests, particularly the northern forests. There was a landmark study that came out last year in the Royal Society Journal looking at where opportunities to conserve both carbon and biodiversity existed around the globe and where those two overlapped. And if you look at the map that comes out of it, one of the top three opportunities is Canada's boreal. Uh, if you think of a visual, think of a, a big area stretching from the James Bay lowlands up through the northern prairie provinces all the way up through the NWT to the Yukon. That whole band in there is really one of the top two or three global opportunities to conserve both carbon and biodiversity in nature, according to some of the world's top scholars. Um, just to give you a sense of the kind of scale of that opportunity, just the trees alone in Canada's forests store more carbon than all of the CO2 emitted globally in one year. And, and that's just the trees. The soils have four times more carbon in them. So there's a lot of carbon up there. Um, the other part that's really significant is the opportunity for economic development for Northern Indigenous communities. Um, the revenues from conserving carbon and biodiversity in Northern forests could play a big role in building sustainable economy in areas where economic opportunities are hard to come by, particularly sustainable ones. Um, the challenge is, is how do we finance biodiversity and carbon conservation in Canada's forest ecosystems, particularly northern ones? Um, our report talks about a, a bunch of different finance options, which we'll get into today, I think, funds and bonds and tax incentives and offsets. 
And, and right now, the largest source of financing for carbon conservation uh, globally is carbon offsets, carbon markets. Uh, globally, the, the market for carbon trading is about $300 billion a year. Of that, over 99% is what's called regulated offsets, offsets that are meeting a compliance obligation. Less than 1% is voluntary offsets, although it was a hope that that will grow. In Canada, we've been talking about having uh, carbon pricing and offsets for 20 years, uh, and we're finally, we finally have it um, because the Greenhouse Gas Pricing Act has been brought in and was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in a case I helped argue earlier this year. Um, it seems like carbon pricing is here to stay for the foreseeable future. We have a price that's at $40 a ton now and rising by $10 to $20 a, a year going forward for the next decade. And that's creating a significant market also for offsets. There will be a market probably of hundreds of millions of dollars a year, maybe rising to billions over time to invest in offsets. And about half of the offset market globally is for forests. And so for Canada, it's really worth thinking about how do we tap into that pool of capital? How do we direct um, a good chunk of that capital, as Paige said, to help meet the, the carbon and biodiversity financing challenge in Canada? And now finally, here's Scott McFatridge. Scott heads up Smart Prosperity's agriculture research. Farmland in Canada makes up about 7% of total land area. Here, Scott explains why that makes it important for advancing biodiversity, nature conservation, and climate goals. I'd say there's an enormous sea change in terms of the expectations from the agricultural sector. There's increasing expectations for it to contribute to Canada's climate change commitments and its net zero ambitions. And if done right, I think this has enormous potential to generate co-benefits for both biodiversity and ecosystem services for uh, conservation and enhancement on farmland. The emissions from the sector have been mostly flat for quite some time, quite stable. They're projected to be stable until about 2030. We obviously, under, under business as usual, that is to say, obviously want to see that, bet, that curve bend and to see the emissions to start going down. And I think we're really starting to lay down the policy architecture to do so. Um, you have the commitments in the budget for 200 million for agricultural climate solutions. You're also seeing more through the 2 billion trees program. So we're starting to see significant expenditures on the public side. Um, but then we're also seeing agriculture and other sectors emerging as offset providers. So opportunities for regulatory compliance for heavy industry and things like that where appropriate. Um, and like I said, I think this, if designed properly, has a lot of ancillary benefits for nature conservation. But then moving to the heart of the matter, I also think that farmland and other working landscapes really have the potential to punch above their weight in terms of their biodiversity conservation potential. Uh, farmland provides habitat for about 50% of species at risk in Canada. The, while the wildlife habitat status of farmland has been declining in the last decade, I still think there's enormous potential to turn the corner on that. And I think it's for that reason why you see um, agriculture considered under one of the priority sectors for the Canadian Wildlife Service's um, pan-Canadian approach to transforming species at risk conservation in Canada. And even more generally, when thinking to the 2030, you know, 30 by 2030 targets, uh, while it's true that the acreage of private land compared to some of these large contiguous protected areas is small, I still think there's enormous potential for synergies between the two targets and that we'd be remiss if we didn't have them both in mind simultaneously because 
Southern Canada has some of the most biodiversity rich landscapes, but it's also some of the most intensively managed landscapes. So um, it does lead to a, a trickier challenge because it's also more expensive to secure that land, right? But I think that's exactly why we want to be seeing innovative financial approaches. So what do these innovative tools for driving more investment towards nature conservation look like? I asked for some specific examples, and here's what our three experts had to say. I'll give an example that may be familiar to folks um, since it relates to one of Canada's newest national parks. Um, but the Thai Dene Nene um, National Park is an Indigenous protected and conserved area that was created um, just in the last couple of years. And there's the initial investment to create the park and an innovation that took place there is a trust fund that was half government investment, half um, NGO philanthropy, other types of contributions that with this $30 million fund, there's a sustained operational um, revenue or revenue that's generated for operational purposes, including Indigenous guardians. Um, and so this sort of shared financing model to fund ongoing park and conserved area management um, is, is being tested in a variety of places around the world. I think we're going to see more of it, especially as we're trying to scale um, protected and conserved areas in Canada, especially in the north. Another quick one that I'll add that's sort of the other side of the coin tying into what Scott was talking about with agricultural lands, you know, where there's already revenue streams like in agriculture and forestry, sometimes attracting private investment becomes a lot more straightforward because the types of instruments you're talking about look a lot like any type of you know, equity investment you might make. And the European Investment Bank has a nature finance facility that is basically, you know, sort of a, an equity or, or debt fund that allows businesses that are generating some type of benefit to biodiversity to access startup funds um, and, you know, ultimately support businesses, but that also deliver um, returns for nature. And so that's a creative model that I think has potential in Canada. Well, I start by saying I think that the potential for conserving nature and conserving carbon in forests has really been largely untapped globally. So the, the the examples are fewer than I wish. I would say if you look globally, there are many examples of um, investing in forest conservation, forest protection. Uh, they tend to be in tropical countries um, where it's called red plus is the global word for it, where you're actually conserving carbon in forests as well as biodiversity and providing benefits to local communities. Um, it can be a mixture of restoration and protection. But again, those are focused largely around avoided deforestation and restoration, which are less applicable here in Canada. If I looked in Canada, I'd say the best example I know of is BC and the coastal First Nations. So BC was the first, and I think still the only province in Canada that has allowed First Nations, indigenous communities to co-own the carbon benefits from forest management and conservation. And that really is one of the keys to unlocking this opportunity um, is that not only, you know, if you're gonna sell a carbon credit for restoring forest or conserving forest, in almost all cases, there's a First Nation community that either lives there, has it in its, in its traditional territory, or often is a co-owner of the forest management rights, the logging rights for the area. So many First Nations are in this weird position where they have an economic interest and, a, and a, a social interest in the forest. The only way they can generate revenue is by cutting the tree down. 
even if that forest may have equal or greater value in carbon or biodiversity. And that's usually the case. Usually the carbon and biodiversity benefits are bigger than the, the timber benefits, but there's only a market for the timber. So BC, by allowing First Nations to basically have 50% of the sale revenue from any carbon, any carbon offset exchanges in the coastal First Nations region, has really unlocked this opportunity for Indigenous sustainable development and conservation up there. We need to take that model and rip, ripple it across Canada, um, and not just for carbon, but for other ecosystem services like biodiversity, so that you can stack those two on top of each other and essentially have a market that pays for the real value. I mean, things like carbon storage, water protection, biodiversity really matter to us. We just don't have markets for them. There's a market for buying timber, the market for buying minerals, but there's not a market for buying carbon sequestration or water protection or biodiversity. These generate those markets, got to share them with First Nations. I'll provide one example from Canada and then one internationally. Um, I think that Ducks Unlimited Canada's revolving conservation fund is um, a very interesting model that could potentially be replicated elsewhere. So under this model, they basically have a fund. They acquire agricultural land uh, that is known to have grasslands or wetlands. Um, they sorry, they restore the grasslands or wetlands where necessary. They secure the property with an easement, and then they resell it in the real estate market. What's you know, no drainage or no break type of easement. And I think that has enormous potential because it solves several problems simultaneously. Uh, you know, in some cases, landowners are very reluctant to sign permanent conservation easements because it basically ties the land and can depress the property value in some cases. So one, it helps, uh, you know, we know there's demand for these ecosystem services and these intact habitats. It's hard to get them supplied permanently through an easement. So it helps address that problem. Um, but then also the market for the real estate market can help facilitate price discovery, make sure we're getting the right price for the easements. And then potentially in some cases, you can recoup the money uh, under the right conditions, right? If you purchase the property, restore it, and the property value appreciates, depending on how fast that is relative to the easement, you might make your money back or even make more money. So, so that would be the first one. Um, the other example would be from abroad. And basically, there's a lot of interesting initiatives now to um, stack ecosystem services and sell them on the market. So you have in the U.S. the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund by Qualified Ventures. In the U.K., you have N-Trade, which is a sort of environmental service online trading platform. And in many of these cases, it's really just trying to find, you know, whether it be through an intermediary or a platform, multiple buyers and sellers so that they can get the full suite of benefits from these land management practices so that, uh, you know, you can make the appropriate land retirements where necessary, or you can encourage cover cropping to help water service companies reduce their costs. So sometimes it's with multiple sellers, other times it's a single one, but I think it's a great way to try to reward this full suite of environmental services that producers are providing to society. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Paige. Thank you, Scott. Those were clips taken from a conversation with Stuart L.G. Page Olmsted and Scott McFatridge from Smart Prosperity Institute. If these clips have whetted your appetite and you want to watch the full conversation, we've got it in its entirety at this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. There's also a link there to a new Smart Prosperity report called Invest in Nature.
now it's time for the 60 second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week we're featuring some new modeling prepared for Clean Energy Canada at Simon Fraser University. To sum up that new modeling, here's the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada, Marin Smith. Our latest report looks at changes in jobs in Canadian energy over the next decade. Canada's clean energy sector already employs 430,000 people. That's more than the real estate sector. And by 2030, our modeling done with Navius Research finds that number grows almost 50% to 640,000 jobs. At the same time, Canada's fossil fuel sector will see a 9% drop in employment. But the clean energy jobs added far exceed those lost in fossil fuels. We know the world is shifting to clean energy, and this will create big opportunities for Canada. The International Energy Agency now says if we're to reach net zero emissions by 2050, no new oil and gas development will be needed. Canada must continually and actively prepare for this new reality. Oil and gas may have dominated Canada's energy past, but it's Canada's clean energy sector that will define its present and its future. Thank you, Marin. For a link to that new modeling report from Clean Energy Canada, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And last, but not least, the segment that everybody looks forward to, even me, your bi-weekly rundown of five other things happening in the green economy this week. It comes courtesy of my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and here he is with a recap of some important recent developments in the green economy. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things I'm watching this week. Number one, last week's G7 summit led to some important commitments on the environment, including $100 billion per year to help developing countries cut climate emissions. Leaders also promised to stop funding coal-fired power plants and to work together on nature and biodiversity. Number two, Canada's environment minister announced that the federal government will no longer approve new thermal coal mining projects. The lower quality coal, which is burned for electricity around the world, is the single biggest contributor to global climate change. Number three, a flurry of announcements, including from Suncor, Synovus, and TC Energy, suggests that carbon grids will be a key solution for Alberta's oil and gas sector to become carbon neutral by 2050. Carbon grids are pipeline systems that capture greenhouse gas pollution from individual oil and gas facilities and then move it to hubs where it can be stored underground. Number four, the city of Vancouver is considering using parking fees to discourage residents from using fossil fuel emitting vehicles. The proposal would see gas powered cars burdened with additional parking charges on city streets up to $1,000 per year, while electric vehicles would be exempt. The innovative policy is designed to improve local air quality, an issue where the city has few other policy levers. And number five, last week, a group of scientists announced that they successfully converted a plastic bottle into vanilla flavoring. It is the first time that a commercially viable chemical has been manufactured using plastic waste. It remains unclear that the world could eat enough vanilla ice cream to offset the 8 million tons of plastic pollution entering our oceans every year. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. 
Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for today's show, the first show of the summer. We will continue to deliver all summer long, and in fact, we're looking for your ideas for what topics to cover on the podcast this summer. If you've got a request, shoot me an email or at me on Twitter. That information is on the website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Finally, I want to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. I'm Eric Campbell. Thank you again for listening. The next episode is out July 7th. 